a podcast where we sit down with everyday Americans and hear their extraordinary stories. I'm your host, Deborah Drucker. Come along with me as we discuss those things that we were always told not to talk about. Politics, religion, and more. I promise you'll be inspired and have your mind opened by the end of this episode. Well, it was kind of cold that night. She stood alone on the balcony Yeah, she could hear the cars roll by Out on 441 Like waves crashing on the beach Hello everyone and welcome to Deborah Craddock. Today on Deborah Craddock, we will be getting to know Aisha Houston. Aisha is a financial professional, a New York City resident, a survivor of abuse, an empowered young woman, and a first-generation college graduate. Let's find out what makes Aisha the inspirational American girl that she is today. How are you doing, Aisha? I'm super excited to be able to tell my story. So we're going to start where I always start. You are a Manhattan resident now, but where are you originally from? So I've lived a lot of different lives in a lot of different places. I was born in Sacramento. Um, I was actually supposed to be born in Fiji, which is where my mom, my dad, and my four brothers were living right before I was born. And then last minute, my mom, I think when she was like eight months pregnant, she came back to the States and had me in Sacramento. Shortly after, we moved to Davis, California, and then moved to Puerto Rico after that. And then after that, ended up in Laguna Beach. And then that brought me here to where I am in Manhattan today. So lots of different places. Okay, so we're going to break that down and kind of go back to step by step. You're originally from Sacramento. You grew up, what I just heard you say, is with four brothers. Correct. And your mother and your father. Correct. And what was that home life like? Um, so I grew up in a very eclectic family. My dad, a very eccentric man, grew up in a predominantly white neighborhood in Northern California, in Merced, California. And I know from the stories that he told me and my mom has told me um, that he had trouble finding his own identity. He was He's half black, half Japanese. Through that, he found Rastafarianism because I think he wanted to connect with his black identity, his black culture. And so he turned to that. And so when he and my mom got together and they ended up moving in together and, and having my first, uh, having the first child, my oldest brother, I think that that became a very big part of my childhood. It was very dominated by religion, dominated by Rastafarianism. And yeah, the family dynamic, it was, it was hard, you know, um, my dad was a very controlling person. And so kind of whatever he want went in the house. Um, the way that my mom and I kind of think back and describe it is that it was kind of always walking on eggshells because you just didn't really know what to expect. He just embraced it because he felt culturally connected. 
Yes. So I don't know all the details, but I do know that, for example, he really turned to reggae music when he was in high school because he sort of wanted to rebel, right, against, again, he was the only, he was one of the only black kids in this really predominantly white neighborhood. I know there were a lot of Latinos as well, but he was one of the only black people. And so he started listening to reggae music. He started smoking weed. And through that, I think he really found comfort and a connection in some really predominant black leaders like Malcolm X and Martin Luther King. And he turned to them. And then that's how he discovered Rastafarianism. And he really leaned into it. So he didn't so much embrace the Japanese side of his culture. Correct. He did not. And was he close with his mom? I think he had an interesting, troubled relationship with both of his parents. Um, You know, I haven't talked to my dad in over 10 years, but I spent a lot of time, especially with him and his mom when I was a kid, so my grandma. And I know that his mom and his dad, they also had sort of a troubled relationship. It was very cold in nature. They were not affectionate. They were not very loving towards each other. And it's interesting even how they kind of operated as a unit because they ended up getting a divorce. But I know that when they were together, um, my grandma, she was this very stoic, strong Japanese woman that really carried her culture on her back. But then I know that his father was also this very strong, controlling power as well. Was he from a like middle-class home or an upper-class home? Were they... I would say middle class. And he and your mom met what, in high school? or They actually met in middle school. Okay. Yeah, they met in sixth grade. My mom was, you know, the, the straight-A student, the cheerleader. And here my dad was, you know, this very interesting, eclectic man who, like I said, he was very rebellious in nature, even his look, right? I think my mom was kind of enamored by him because he was so different than what she was and what she was surrounding herself with. And she was really drawn to that. And so in a weird way, they the opposites attracted. And I think it worked. And you are the youngest and the only girl in the family? I am. So you grew up with four older brothers? Yes, four older brothers. And was it a happy upbringing? It was happy at times, but overall, I would say it was pretty sad. Me being the only girl was actually even more of probably a power dynamic because gender was very prominent growing up in my household. Um, My dad was very much of the belief that women played a certain role in the household while men played another role. Um, And so growing up in this environment where I was kind of in this push and pull situation and role because... I knew I was I was very cognizant of the fact that I was the only girl from a very young age. Because of that, I kind of started taking on these domestic roles from a very, very, very young age in the house, right? Helping my mom cook, helping my mom clean. But then also I was a kid and I wanted to have fun with my brother. So I remember that being a, an internal conflict for me from a very young age. So were you more of a tomboy or did you like your dolls or were you allowed to have dolls and things like that? So I was allowed to have a few dolls. My dad was very strict as to what we could and couldn't have in the household. I mean, for example, with the dolls that we had, they had to be dolls of color. No (laughs) white dolls in my household. Um, But I would describe myself, you know, it's interesting. I think it kind of changed over the years. I would say that when I was really young, 
I loved dolls. I loved girly things. I was like obsessed with American Girl growing up. So I was exposed to some of these things. But then I think as I got a little bit older, then I kind of turned more into a tomboy. And I actually started skating more and hanging out with my brothers more and doing that kind of stuff. So you're in Sacramento for how many years of your life? So I was actually only in Sacramento for a couple of months before we ended up moving to Davis. And it's an interesting story behind that because my mom made this last minute decision when she was eight months pregnant to fly back to California. And because of that, she didn't have much time to find a place. And I was, my mom gave birth to me at home along with my four brothers because my dad did not abide to or believe in the American healthcare system. He was a complete American or just Western medicine. Western as a medicine whole. as a whole. He did not abide to it at all. Was and there a so, midwife? No, there was not. A doula? When my mom was pregnant with my oldest brother, Jamai, she met a Japanese midwife in Hawaii, which is where they were living at the time. And this woman, I guess, told my mom and told my dad, you can do this on your own. And so she sat with my mom and she coached her through exactly what she needs to look out for to be safe. Um, She told her, this is when you know you need to go to the hospital, but if none of these things happen, then you can do it yourself. Fully birthed her children by herself. By herself, yes. My dad cut the umbilical cord. Wow. Yeah. That's amazing. No medication, no Advil, nothing. That's incredible. (laughs) She must be a very strong woman to to be able to do that. I know. Tell me about your brothers. You have four older brothers. Tell me their names. So going from the top, um, Jemai is the oldest, then Abby, Nija, Kiare, and then me, Aisha. And how are they all doing today? Um, Nija is... I'm going to start with him because I think it's the most straightforward. Is he the one you were closest with growing up? I was closest with Nigel growing up, I would say. Um, I think Nigel and I always uh, were the most similar just in terms of our ambitions. And we were both very outgoing growing up. And even the way my mom kind of describes it as we were babies, we were like the, I think she calls us like the babies by the book, you know, we, (laughs) we cried and we were hungry. We cried when we like retired. And I know that it was a little bit different with my other brothers. And I think that really translated, you know, later on in life too. Um, and today it's like Nigel's husband has made a really successful career for himself, skateboarding me. I've made a successful career for myself, moving to New York, doing some completely different working in finance. And I think the other three boys, my other three brothers, they never found their thing. My mom and I talk about this a lot. I just don't think they've found their thing, and I hope they do. But until they do, they're struggling. They're not alone. So many people just don't come into life with a clear path. Mm-hmm. But you remain close with them or keep in touch? It's hard for me because... I certainly want a relationship with them, right? I mean, especially since my dad isn't in the picture anymore. um, I want to have a family, right? It's not like I want to be completely isolated from them. But I'm just at a point in my life right now uh, where I have built a life for myself so different that it feels very polarizing, you know? And it's almost like 
when I talk with my mom, even I have to put on a different hat, right? I have to turn, switch my life here off and kind of turn that switch on. And there's only so many hours in the day and it can be really hard and overwhelming to kind of keep up with it all. And also I have had my own mental health journey where I have sought out therapy. I had a lot of struggles of my own, especially during college. And I think after therapy, it's really allowed me to kind of become very radically comfortable with myself. I don't know if I'm able to have the relationship with them that I want until they get that help and until we kind of are starting at a similar baseline because even when I talk to them today, it just feels very surface level because there's so much that we have not talked about that needs to be addressed. Well, it sounds like you are focusing on yourself and you're into self-care mm-hmm. and you are moving forward, which is a really beautiful thing. You can't ask for more than growth, mm-hmm. personal growth. And you've come you know, from the ashes of so much and we're going we're gonna to touch on most of it. And just to share with you, I have siblings and we're all very different. Mm-hmm. You know, so I can't expect the same outcome from each of them that I expect from myself. Mm-hmm. When you go from Davis, is is the next step Puerto Rico? There was some time in between that. I would say Davis was um, sort of our home base, but I was homeschooled growing up. All of us were homeschooled, and Nigel started his career in skating. He got his first skateboard when he was three years old. And so once that was introduced into the family, I mean, there was no turning back, right? Our entire lives, our entire world started to revolve around traveling around the States, traveling around America, visiting the different skate parks while my mom was homeschooling us. And so we were very mobile. We lived in a motor home for a couple of years. Um, but Davis was the home base up until... My dad and Nigel, this is when his career started to kind of blow up, when he started to really become this child prodigy and people were noticing him and his talent. They started traveling outside of the States. And one of those trips was to Puerto Rico. And my dad had really fallen in love with it, especially because Puerto Rico, it was easier logistically to move to. And I think that My dad, especially with Rastafarianism and his connection to it, he was very attracted to this sort of island lifestyle, um, going with the flow, not having to follow the capitalist society, capitalist ideals that we were exposed to living in California. Do you think that was just too much pressure for him to fit into this mold or he just was an outlier? He was always just an outlier. Um, I think he was always an outlier, but I think that when Nigel's career started to um, sort of blow up and we started to get more attention, it made him very comfortable. And I think in a way he was kind of panicking internally, like, how am I going to balance my son's talent and his career, but also my own paranoia and this need to keep my family isolated so that I can control them, control the environment. So was skateboarding something your father did? Was How does the skateboarding come into this whole picture? Yes, it is something my father did. He never did it professionally, but I think that's similar to being a Rastafarian, similar to him kind of going through these internal conflicts with his own identity, um, with his parents and his race and all of that. Skateboarding 
fit into that really well because it was also kind of this rebellious thing, especially back in like the 70s and 80s, my parents growing up. It was, it very much fit the mold of being rebellious and kind of going against this grain of society. So he just had, he, he needed to break free. Something, exactly. something was going on. Was he very oppressed in his home? Or did he have siblings as well? Were, were his parents just so strict? I know that my dad in the house, he had it hard. I think his brother was sort of the favorite child and he didn't get as much attention. I think him and his dad had a really hard relationship. And so um, I think he was oppressed in society, but also in his own home. When you then are moving around with the skateboarding, the family's in a mobile home, going everywhere for most, mainly for Nyjah, right? Yes. And you're all just tagging along because you're this collective and you go everywhere together. Is that how it is? Your dad doesn't. <laughs> we were a unit. We yes. were seriously one unit. We traveled and lived as one. Amazing. And your father then in this Rastafarianism, which, you know, when you hear about it, you think, oh, wait, really chill, you know, mm -hmm. smoke some weed, go skateboarding, kick back, live yeah. off the land. It's not so mellow, is it, this Rastafarianism? It's a little more controlling or? I think his lived experience was it, with it was, it started as a lifestyle with values that he believed in and he identified with. And I think it turned into a mechanism to control the family and, and you know, the entire situation. I've, I've heard he could be likened to a like a cult leader or someone that you could really fall in line with. He had this sort of power about him that, he, yes, that he, drew people in. We still know a lot of people in the industry that had a chance to meet him and interacted with him. And people have such different opinions of him. I mean, it's crazy. You'll speak to some people that were so turned off the beginning, like, whoa, I don't know who this guy is, but he is not good vibes. And then you speak to other people that were just absolutely enamored. And so, yeah, I think that's a totally fair judgment when people say that he can be likened to a cult leader because he had this charisma, but also this dominion, right? He walked into a room and he demanded a presence like none other. Wow. Yeah. So he was somewhat a chameleon. Exactly. Exactly. And I think, honestly... It worked really well for him until it didn't, until he couldn't have control over everything. And I think Nigel's career was a catalyst to that. Okay, so you're traveling around. He's loving that his son is becoming this famous skater. Mm -hmm. And at which juncture does he decide, let's go to Puerto Rico, and why? Would that take you guys away from the skateboarding, or would that immerse you more into the skateboarding life? He started to lose control because of all the attention on Nija and the sponsors and people were starting to make demands of him. Um, I mean, especially when it came to the money, right? Because Nija was a kid and so he didn't have control over it. Um, and uh, I remember the sponsor, you know, I know my dad would be very demanding with some of the contracts and the money and payments and all of that. And because my mom was a woman, she wasn't really allowed to be part of these conversations. And so he felt very pressured to keep this control over every aspect of Nigel's career. But once it started to take on a life of its own, I think that's when he kind of realized we need to get out of here and I need to gain back this control. And I think them going to Puerto Rico and him realizing that 
it was far enough and different enough. That was the aha moment. And my mom tells the story of when they got back from Puerto Rico. Um, you know, my dad is a very stoic cult person. I mean, he went to my mom and he cried to her and said, we need to move to Puerto Rico. This is my dream. This is going to make the family. I personally think he was being manipulative. So he decides then to, you know, kind of, it sounds a little bit be careful what you wish for because he wished for his son to be this great skater and then he wanted to take him out of all the limelight and fanfare. Yeah. And what did that do to Nigel's career then and to you all to just pick up the family and now relocate again to such a foreign place as Puerto Rico? It was really hard, especially because not just Nigel, but I think all of us kind of started to get this like taste of freedom through the skateboarding because, for example, we had our family business for a while was having a skate park, right? And so I think through that, because we weren't in school, this was the one opportunity we had to actually like socialize with other kids and we loved it. And once we had to get up, get up and move everything to Puerto Rico, especially the older boys was like, you gotta be fucking kidding me, right? right? I just started to make these friends. I'm just starting to learn about society. I'm starting to learn about what it means to like a girl. And all of a sudden, you plop us into Puerto Rico, living in the middle of the jungle, completely isolated with no access to the outside world. And you're this kid and your life has changed so drastically. Do you fall into a depression? Like, how do you deal with your emotions as a child there? I think that all of our emotional development was so stunted from such a young age. I mean, we didn't, we didn't even know how to identify in our emotions to begin with, right? It was almost like our emotions were completely dictated by my dad's emotions, right? We didn't have a choice. We didn't have emotional freedom. And so thinking back, I mean, it's so hard to even say what I felt because I don't really think I had feelings of my own that I could self-identify. Um, the main emotions that come to mind when I think back to this time in my life. I think a feeling of being lost. I think confusion. Honestly, like really extreme boredom, to be what honest. fear? Was there fear there? There was mostly fear of the unknown because there were just, I don't know, like I said, like we got this taste of freedom and then all of a sudden it was taken away from us and we just didn't really know what was happening, so. Well, you said it was like walking on eggshells, so I'm just assuming he had a temper? Yes, he did. And he was not physically abusive, was he? He was. He was physically abusive, um, especially with the oldest boys. There was this weird dynamic at play between them because as they got older, um, I mean, my oldest brother was, I think, like 15, 16 when we first moved to Puerto Rico. So he was becoming a man. And that changed things in the house, right? Because not only was he learning how to speak his own mind, but he could also fight back physically. Right. My dad was also always physically abusive towards my mom. With me, less so. I mean, you definitely got the arm grab. You got the threats. Um, but definitely with my oldest brothers and my mom as well. Well, I'm sorry that you had to experience that, but you are amazing today. Mm. So all of these <laughs> things made you this lady sitting right in front of me, and I'm so honored to have you here. 
So what does that mean, Rastafarianism? It's a spectrum for us. We were very orthodox and, you know, like, it kind of changed. Some days is more strict than others. It really all depended on what my dad wanted and what mood he was in, frankly. But one thing that a lot of people don't know is that Rastafarianism, Rastafarianism does have a doctrine, right? And we followed that doctrine very strictly, right? Um, just like there's a, you know, like a deity in other religions, there's a deity in Rastafarianism as well um, by the name of Jah. Um, and so we prayed to Jah every day. We said a prayer before every single meal. Um, we would give thanks all the time throughout every single day to Jah for this life. And, you know, one thing, this was definitely in the more like extreme moments of um, the religion growing up, but my dad also thought that we were part of the chosen people, right? That we're going to be, that we're essentially like chosen to live, right? I mean, I'm going back to like Old Testament stuff. Okay, was there restrictions on what you could eat? Like, Yeah, so we were really strict in our diet. That was definitely a big part of growing up. Um, completely vegan. Everything had to come from the earth, so nothing from animals. And Do you carry that dietary habit stuff. <laughs> I do. I do. I don't even know if I ever really made like a real conscious decision around it. It was almost as if I just never really started to eat meat. When I moved to New York, I'm like, you know what? I just feel best when I'm vegan. And it's actually one of the few things from my childhood today that I'm really happy that I, that I stuck with. And no candy, no, no tasty treats, none of that? No, our, you know, our childhood, it was like, I think this is honestly probably one of the saddest things about our childhood is that we never really got to have much of a childhood, you know? Like, we weren't allowed to be kids and have candy and play with toys and stuff. Like, I don't even know how to really describe it at times, but it was almost like a life with, like, no indulgence. Our version of watching cartoons was, like, watching... We could watch The Lion King because there is people of color in it. Okay. <laughs> and it was based in Africa. <laughs> um, let's see, what else could we watch? We could watch The Jungle Book. Okay. Um, but, like, I mean, very highly restricted. I mean, we were living for most of it. It was on a 30-acre farm that was, like, 20, 30 minutes from even, like, a mainland road. Eventually, my dad... Um, my dad and I actually built this whole, like, skate ramp on the property. And so he could do some training there. But... It was pretty much putting the kibosh on it. Like, how's dad generating income? You know, he had money. He never had a bank account, I'll say that. But he was growing and selling weed his entire life. I mean, that was... Our, like, if I had to put a few words to my childhood and our entire upbringing, it was like skateboarding, religion, and weed. Those were like the three things that we followed and the three things that we lived by. And so he did generate income off of that. But I mean, he literally, literally would dig holes in the backyard and put cash in it. And, and would buckets. your mom <laughs> make your clothes or like, how were you getting things to wear? My mom was sewing almost all of our clothes. Um, I think as we got older, it got hard to keep up and then she started homeschooling us. And so she just didn't have as much time. And so we started to buy simple clothes, but I mean, me, I was taking all the hand-me-downs from my brothers for the most part. <laughs> yeah. I think that's why I also ended up becoming this tomboy because I'm like, okay, I don't really have a choice. I only have like cargo shorts and element t-shirts to wear. So. I mean, I get <laughs> that you were a tomboy. I can totally see it with the four boys ahead of you and the hand-me-downs. But as I sit here with you today, you are just such a beautiful feminine woman. Oh. 
Yeah, it's something that I've leaned into a lot, for sure. I think that I've had my own conflicts around it. And I even think for a while, maybe I had some, like, shame around being a woman. Um, I mean, for example, like, because I grew up in an environment where we had to cook and being very domestic was almost this weird, like, submissive thing. For a while, I hated cooking. I refused to do it. I was like, no, I want to move to New York and be a boss bitch in finance. I don't want to do anything around the house. Cheers. And uh, the past couple of years, I've, uh, I don't know, I feel like I've just become much more comfortable with what I actually like to do. And one of those things is being this really strong female and kind of leaning into that femininity. Um, and I don't even know if I necessarily equate like doing domestic stuff and cooking and stuff with like femininity. To me, it's so much more, right? I think like for me, I'm really trying to not put labels and put myself in these certain buckets. It's like, okay, I am who I am. This is what I like. I can do it all. And who's to tell me I can't? Right. This is just general tasks of life. Exactly. Like preparing food for yourself. I mean, I love men who can cook. Exactly. <laughs> I don't find I them more feminine. And your mom is such an empowered woman today. I mean, I only know your mom many years after she left your dad. Uh-huh. And she's just such an empowered woman. Mm-hmm. And she's now the full-time manager for your brother. Mm-hmm. And other people? Or is she just exclusively managing Nyjah? Um, on paper, she is. In reality, <laughs> she's managing all the boys, right? Yeah, right? And me at times, too. I mean, I've become, you know, much more independent. My mom is the strongest woman I know, period. Absolutely. She's the strongest person I know. I mean, the stuff that she's gone through and the stuff that she's overcome, it's it's extremely impressive. Um, and I think what's probably the most impressive about it all so she's never given up, right? Like, even with my three other brothers who are really struggling to find who they are, find what they want to do, she has never once given up on them. She continues to support them. And I've even given up at some point. So I'm like, Mom, you need to take a break. You need to be there for yourself. She's just a devoted mother. Yeah. And I want to get back to that, too, because she was homeschooling you. How did that go? My mom was definitely uh, a very patient teacher <laughs> with all of us. And honestly, I think like, I don't know, this is sometimes why I struggle. I mean, you asked me, you asked me if I had a happy childhood and I said that at times it was. And I think it's like moments when I think back where my mom was teaching me, you know, how to like teaching me my timetables and how to read and write. Like those were the happy moments, you know, because we were so close as a family. We were so, like, interconnected. Um, so it wasn't all bad. From what I understand, your mom was a pretty good teacher because you went, you didn't even attend real traditional school until you were 12, right? Correct. <laughs> and how, was that a big struggle, or did you just get in there and fit in and make your way pretty quickly? Or I don't know how I did it, Debbie. <laughs> I don't know how I did it. I really don't know. I mean, it just goes to show how powerful humans can really be. I went without my mom for 18 months in Puerto Rico because she went back to California and I ended up with my dad and Nigel alone and my dad wasn't going to educate us. And so I not only was homeschooled and missed out on a lot of the curriculum, the general curriculum, but I also went 18 months without any education at all. And 18 months without seeing your mom. Correct, yeah. And that was when she devised an escape from your father? 
Yes, it was. And you decided to remain in Puerto Rico with Nyjah, right? It's a sad story. I didn't have much control in the situation, and my dad was just really brainwashing us. What what happened was my mom had to devise an escape plan um, because things were getting really bad, especially with the abuse with the older boys specifically. Because, you know, things were just kind of falling apart. It was the beginning of the end. And my mom recognized that she needed to get out fast. And so what she what what she kind of landed on is, okay, in an effort to make my family safe, I'm going to need to sacrifice one way or another. And so she went back to California with me and three the three boys other than Nyjah. Because my dad was very protective over Nyjah and his career and his skateboarding and everything. But I thought, meanwhile, he's in Puerto Rico not skateboarding, no? Yeah, but they always had this connection with each other, I think, um, because my dad was also his filmer. And, you know, he was still skating, just not as much. And my dad kind of, like, cut off all of the sponsors. And so it was back to, like, the roots, right? Just, like, skating to skate. Um, but what my mom did is she went back to California with all of us except Nyjah. Um, she actually enrolled all of us in school right away. Meanwhile, she was trying to figure out how to get Nyjah back. It was a really crazy time. Um, and I guess my dad ended up getting in touch with her and he was like, I think that you should really send Aisha back before she goes back to school. Um, I'm sure she really misses the farm. She misses the animals. She misses Nyjah. Um, and so my mom kind of gave in and she sent me back. Hmm. My dad just kept me, cut off all communication with my mom. And so he sort of like kidnapped me and he had me in Nyjah for those 18 months. From what I read, you were somewhat brainwashed to stay with your dad. Yes. And did you feel then this love and warmth towards him or did you feel comfort, like to be brainwashed, did you feel comfortable close to him? I also had heard that maybe he sometimes would keep you guys from having water and like there were is that is that so he was extremely manipulative i think part of his way of manipulating us as kids was you know punishment and reward but you know what's so crazy is that the reward was his attention it was him saying good job or i see you that's what all kids want Exactly. They want the love and acceptance of their parents at, at any cost. Yeah, so I think it's I think it's less so that I felt warm and comfortable. I did not feel warm and comfortable, but it was more so that I was just like so desperate for love and for attention and I felt so lost in the midst of it all and all of a sudden I was we were all together as a family and then I was with my mom then I didn't know what was going on and then I got sent back to Puerto Rico alone and I was like I just want love and I just want attention and comfort you guys were very close you and your mom yes and now remain that way oh so was there there was a break in that closeness where when my mom first got me back, um, so it was, you know, the fast forward the 18 months, she finally was able to get my dad into court and she ended up winning the full custody battle. And so once again, I got pulled in a way that I didn't have any control over. All of a sudden, I was living with her full time. The courts mandated me to go to school for the first time. And... I hated my mom at the time because I was so brainwashed. And again, like, 
I think I was just so exhausted of being told these conflicting things for so many years. And all of a sudden, like this life that we had all built for ourselves and our family was just gone. I was so resentful, um, but I needed her at the same time. Right. And so I would say that our relationship from probably the age of 12 when I first started going to school to honestly, like all the way through high school, it was very transactional. Now we had a good relationship at times. We got in fights. We had a bad relationship, but I never felt that warm comfort of like a mother, I would say, until her and I both started our healing journey and started going to therapy. And we actually started to have these conversations that were really necessary to process that resentment that I had towards her and forgive her and kind of see her as a person. Well, she was also in survival mode. Exactly. For herself. And and she was out there just trying to, I'm assuming, to figure out how to get you all into the safety of another place out of the grips of your father. And she then gets full custody of all five kids. Let's rewind a bit. Just in this upbringing while you're still, you know, under your father's rule. He just has this distrust for American culture or what does he have any political affiliation? Was he like a Democrat or Republican or like what did where did you arrive at? The, the political perspective you have today. How is that formulated? My mom and I sometimes joke that <laughs> I think the only worst career in my dad's eyes, other than finance, which is what I'm in, is politics. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't know. It's like we didn't grow up Democratic. We didn't grow up Republican. We grew up Rastafarians, and that was it. So how did you arrive at your political perspective? And what is your political perspective? I'm a very proud Democrat. Um I would say that the first time I actually started to get more involved with politics uh, was when I moved to New York and in 2020 after George Floyd, I kind of had this moment where I was like, oh shit, I need to do something about this. I need to educate myself. I need to get involved. And it's almost like this intense feeling of like responsibility or like burden kind of came over me. To your african-american side or a bit yeah i was definitely going through a little bit of like an identity crisis at the time and um i think for a while i subconsciously not even consciously like didn't want anything to do with my black side my japanese heritage and also like all my friends are white honestly and so i just didn't really think about these things until george floyd in 2020 and i kind of realized that i was in this unique position being Um, you know, like a successful woman living in New York, doing her thing, but also being a mixed race woman and that intersectionality. Um, I think I experienced a pretty extreme shift. Honestly, at the time, I don't even know how local elections worked. I just was not educated on it. And I started like vigorously doing research on it. That was your first, very first election. Yeah, that was my first election. That was my first election. Um, So as soon as I got back to New York, um, this was in fall of 2020, I think I got back to New York like September, October. I signed up to be a poll worker. Oh, wonderful. So you were activated by George Floyd. I was nervous because I felt like, God, I still don't really know much about this. But I don't know. I just felt like I had this duty to like learn and be a part of it. Um, and get my friends engaged as well. And so I started using my social platforms to post about the election. I was like encouraging all my friends to go vote. And ever since then, I've stayed involved in that way. I still work the local elections sometimes. Um, 
especially the presidential ones. I'm for sure going to work it for 2024. And how did you arrive at your take on religion? Like, where are you now? Are you religious or is there any religion in your life? Yeah, that's that's also been a journey as well. Um, now where I sit today, I don't identify as religious. Um, but then again, I don't really identify as like an atheist either. I think, I think I'm just like... I believe in something. I don't know what that something is, and I don't need to know what that is. I think the main issue that I have with religion, um, you know, is the same that it was five years ago. It's just that a lot of, it can be used to control and manipulate, and I think that um, organized religion can be really dangerous, but at its core, I don't think religion is a bad thing. I think bad people make it bad. I agree. Absolutely <laughs> yeah, agree. Yeah, so that's where I stand today. Where do you think you grew up into this woman that you are sitting in front of me today? I think I became who I am in New York. (laughs) The greatest city ever. Um, I mean, I love all of our country, but New York has just something about it, right? Yeah. And that's that's when you found yourself and you said, this is who I'm going to be? I think so. The first time I visited New York, I think I was in seventh grade. Uh, It was actually for one of Nigel's competitions that was being held in, um, I think we're in Soho and just looking up at the buildings and being like, oh my God, this is so cool. And uh, I just wanted to be here so bad. And I think that, um, I think that I saw life for myself outside of being Nigel's sister um, here and just kind of being able to leave everything behind. I think it was this weird rebellious thing for me where I knew my dad would never want me to live in the city. And so I just fell in love with it right away. I mean, I won't lie, when I first moved here um, after I graduated high school, it was difficult. I feel like a lot of young people go through this when they move to New York. It's definitely a culture shock no matter where you're coming from because it's like, oh, wow, you're really here. It's scary. It's scary. <laughs> it's scary. I so, moved here yeah. also in my young 20s, and I was I was intimidated, and I was yeah. lonely. Yeah. I wasn't a graduate from a local school, a local university. I just came here to work. And, uh, yeah, it was lonely, but, you know, in a matter of time, New York wrapped its arms around me, and I made a lot of friends, <laughs> and it turned out. Sounds a lot like what you're doing, where you're just embracing it, you're immersed in it, and you are a New Yorker. Exactly. I hope I'm a New Yorker now. They say you have to live here 10 years, but I'm going to beg to disagree. I feel like I'm a New Yorker. (laughs) Seem like a New Yorker to me. So you don't have a formal education until you're 12 years old. And where do you then enter school? Because it's quite an accomplishment to have not had a formal education until you're 12 years old and end up you know, a top graduate from NYU, from the Stern School of Business, like, wow. Going back to sixth grade, going into my first classroom ever, it was such a shock. I was like, oh my God, how am I going to learn? How am I going to catch up on the academia, let alone even like learn how to make friends, right? Um, And somehow I was able to push through. It was humiliating because again, like I was trying to figure out how to even like make friends at the time just because all this was so new to me. Um, But I think going through that, it really motivated me to learn and to catch up by the end of sixth grade somehow, somehow, some way, some miracle. I was able to catch up for the most part academically and socially as well. I'm kind of acclimating to all that. And so moving to Laguna was this opportunity to build this new life for myself, build my brand. Reinvent yourself. Reinvent myself. And so that's exactly what I did. And 
Um, school kind of came natural to me, to be honest, like seventh, eighth grade, even high school. Are you an avid reader? I love reading. I love writing. I love math. Um, I just love learning. I don't know. I think learning to me in education is very freeing. Um, it's something that I'm super passionate about till this day is education. Like I strongly, strongly, strongly believe that education is the way to change generations to come. Right. It is just like such an empowering thing to learn. Universities should be more affordable as far as I'm concerned. We could do a whole nother podcast on that. Right. Absolutely. That's a whole nother conversation. Yeah. Yeah. And you're on track when you come to Laguna Beach. Yep. And how does that move happen? Like what happens? Your mom takes you from Davis to, how how do you transfer from where you were before to Laguna Beach? Yeah. So my oldest brothers, um, Jemai and Abby, were getting into some trouble at the time with the local police. I mean- it was In just, Davis. Yeah, it okay. was messy because what happened was once my mom got full custody of us and my dad wasn't in the picture, he pretty much left like the picture right away. Um, all of us kind of reacted in our own extremes. For me, it was, okay, I'm going to figure out how to do this whole school thing. For Nija, it was, okay, I'm going to get back on track with my skating career. And for the other three boys, it was kind of rebelling in their own way, you know, doing drugs, like getting into gangs, just getting involved with some bad characters. And meanwhile, my mom was trying to make money and build a life for herself and for her kids and reinvent herself. And so honestly, Debbie, like, I just don't think she had the time to monitor and manage it all. And so um, things got kind of out of control with them. I mean, all the things that they missed out on, I'm I'm not surprised. Exactly. It's not not shocking. Yeah. And so my mom, what she decided is, okay, we need to get out of here. And so she called her friend, Stacy, who she's known since she was a baby. She was like, you can come live with me and bring the kids. And so that's how we ended up on Laguna Beach. Wow. Yeah. Wow. What a good friend. My life is one of extremes. And that was certainly one of the extremes living in moving from Sacramento to Davis to Puerto Rico, Davis again, and then ending up in Laguna Beach out of all places. (laughs) So who then was the most influential person? Like who did you really... Who was your mentor growing up? My friends. Yeah. Um, I met a really amazing group of girlfriends in seventh grade um, when I first moved there. Some of them had grown up in Laguna. Um, some of them had just moved there as well. And they showed me so much. And I just became this like sponge, honestly. And I started doing everything that they were doing. And I think they were also the first people that I was pretty candid with because at first when I moved to Laguna, I didn't think I was going to tell anybody about my backstory. I had no plan to tell people who my brother was. I had no plan to tell people where I came from. I was like, you know what? We're starting with a blank slate. And I was super ashamed about where I came from. But I think like over the years, probably by the time I, I don't know, knew them for like a year or two, I started to open up about a few things. I started being comfortable bringing them over so they could meet my mom, meet my brothers. And I think through that, I was able to kind of accept myself and love myself. So having this wildly famous skateboarding brother, is that a burden or a benefit? It's changed over the years for sure. I think, to be quite honest, when I first moved to Laguna, it was both because I mean, it was a benefit because 
honestly allowed me to make some friends, right? When people found out he was my brother, people wanted to be around me. They thought it was so cool and all that kind of stuff. Um, and so it got me some really good friends. Oh, good. So those yeah. were real people that became real friends. Yeah, because, I mean, it's hard. Like, coming into this new school system, I'm, like, the new person, and there's not much to relate on. Also, like, seventh grade is hard. Okay. It allowed me to at least, like, start off these friendships, and then obviously they took on a life of their own. Um, and so it was a benefit in that way. I obviously met some bad characters that were only friends with me because of him, but they got weeded out pretty fast. Um, but then it was a burden as well because... I was trying to reinvent myself, but then once people found out he was my brother, that became a big part of my identity. So once again, it was kind of like, eh, is this really who I am, you know? Um, so it was a benefit and a burden. Well, it definitely drove you to find your own identity, I think. Yeah, exactly. And so what happens, like, do you suffer post-traumatic stress when you're growing up and you've, you know, you've been freed of this oppressive situation? Do you, how do you overcome all those emotions? How do you, how do you work through that? Yeah, uh, I was extremely resilient through it all, um, almost to the point where I didn't even process anything because, yeah, I just pushed everything down and I was just so focused on where am I going, not where did I come from, um, that I didn't really reflect. I became totally numbed out. I just never thought about it, you know? And then um, I think where I had my biggest shift is actually when I was in college, I studied abroad in Madrid. It was the first time that I had kind of been taken out of like this crazy day-to-day work hard environment because I was always pretty much doing stuff, working and, you know, doing stuff for myself. And then when I went abroad, everything paused. And also I think like being so far away from it all, um, it hit me. It hit me real hard. I felt things that I had never felt before. I had never thought of myself as someone that struggled with mental health. Your mind was too busy. Yeah, exactly. My mind was so busy, so active. Um, But then when I paused, it hit me really hard. And I certainly struggled with depression, um, really bad anxiety, like debilitating anxiety. Um, And I was diagnosed with a few things. I had to go see a psychiatrist. They diagnosed me with complex PTSD, major depressive disorder, anxiety disorder, and I got on medication and the medication really helped me. And um, once I got back to New York after I studied abroad, that's when I started seeing a therapist. And I think in combination with the medication, the therapist, um, and also having my mom show up for me in this new way, I was really able to heal and get through it. But it's a journey, right? I still see my therapist every single week. Um, and I have kind of like accepted that the highest form of healing is, is that you're never going to be fully healed, right. you know? And so that's where I'm at today. Well, my friend describes us as humans as perfectly imperfect. Mm-hmm. And exactly. I don't believe there is such thing as perfection. And I, I really appreciate that you share this because the value of therapy, you can't express it unless you've gone through it. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? The value of mental health and being brave enough to say, I need help. Yeah. It's epic. Mm-hmm. It's just, it's paramount. Because I know you want to give voice to those who don't have one. And mm-hmm. how do you help people that you interface with or if you have 
that mm-hmm. have been in abusive situations? Yeah. I mean, obviously everything I'm going to say is easier said than done, but I think it really all starts with yourself because even if you're living in an abusive situation, right, you always have yourself and as much as it's important about finding people to support you. I mean, I certainly could not have gone through what I went through and gotten out of it without the support of my mom, my friends. But if it wasn't for me and that, like, I don't know, acknowledging like, oh, wow, I actually need help. I, nothing would have ever happened because that's the catalyst of healing yourself. Um, And so having the strength to acknowledge, like, I'm in a really bad, bad situation and reminding yourself that this is not your fault, right? Um, once you start there and you can acknowledge that and actually forgive yourself, regardless if it's been going on for days, months, years, starting at that point of kind of realizing like, okay, there's something wrong here and it needs to be changed. And then going forward, devising a plan to, I mean, obviously it's in varying degrees, but I think it all starts with acknowledgement. You once told the New York Times that you first got high from pot brownies at the age of eight (laughs) years old. Was that then a gateway drug to other drugs? Did you become someone who self-medicated at any point? Um, Yeah, when I was in Madrid, when I was studying abroad, I for sure struggled with some substance abuse issues. Um, Thankfully, it never got so out of control that, um, you know, I had to... I had to like take time off school or anything like that, but it was an issue for sure. Just cause like, I think I just wanted to escape more than anything. Um, now I think I have like a really healthy relationship with it. I mean, I honestly, I barely even like drinking alcohol at this point. I like being clean. I like being sober. I like everyone has their own opinions on this and everyone's going to do what they want to do. But for me, at least I feel my best when I am sober and yeah. Yeah, well, you're probably most most focused at that point. Yeah. Now let's talk about your career today. Mm-hmm. So you are a financial professional. Tell us what that means. So I work in wealth management. I've worked in wealth management for a couple of years now. I love it. Um, I think also working in finance in New York is amazing, and it is a male-dominated industry and. Um, I think that sometimes I struggle with that in certain respects, not only because it's a male-dominated industry, but because, I mean, I'm the first to admit that working in finance, it's not 100% aligned with all my values. But what I get really excited about personally is that I think being a woman and being a woman of color in this business, there has never been a better time because money is power. And the more that I'm able to help people use that money for for good and to empower them, the better this world is going to be. And so I'm super proud of myself. I'm very proud to be in the industry. I'm very proud to be a professional industry. And also, I mean, just open up and pave the path for other women that want to be a part of it as well. I'm pretty involved in the recruiting efforts at my company, um, empowering young women and their early careers. And so I really like it. I really like it. So have you ever encountered sexism? Yeah, I have. And unfortunately, I think it's pretty common in the workplace. You know, people talk about like microaggressions. That's pretty common. Um, As well as more outright sexism at times, too. I mean, you look at all the, 
you know, I mean, you look at it, you can look at it in a super grand scale, right? Like how many female CEOs are there in America or on a more granular scale as well, right? Like looking at my local office, right? How many women are on the office? What are they doing? I think there's so many different lenses in which you can look at it through. Unfortunately, we're not in a place where we've reached equity, but I... I can say with confidence that things are changing and things are changing really fast. And I'm personally excited that I'm a part of that change. So would you say you're optimistic about the future of women in America? Um, I am. I am. Because what other choice do we have, right? It's like, <laughs> obviously, some days it's really hard. And I'm like, wow, we are not in a good place. I mean, especially with the violence that has gone on the past couple of years. After George Floyd, it was such a stark shift for me. And ever since then, I've become much more active and aware of my own biases and the biases of others. But where I'm at is kind of like, all you can have is hope and all you can do is try to do your best collectively so that we can make a difference. Um, and I think that like even the fact that I'm in the position that I'm in today and the job that I'm in working for the company that I work for, this wouldn't have been possible even like 20 years ago. Well, you know, Aisha, you are a very empowered woman. Mm -hmm. You have an education, which I, I wish for everyone out there. Yeah. And you moved yourself from this university where you graduated as one of the top students in the business school. Mm -hmm. And how did you then get this job? I how worked you... my ass off. <laughs> <laughs> I worked my ass off. And not only did I just like work really hard in school, but I also worked against myself. You know, I had, I still have such bad imposter syndrome. And I know that I come off as empowered and confident, and I think I am these things, but there's always those voices in your head saying, you can't do this, you weren't meant to do this. Um, I think a big thing for me that I struggle with is belonging. I can be in a room full of men, powerful men, whatever, whoever it is, and I think like on the outside, I put off this very, um, this presence of like, no, I'm meant to be here. But inside my head, those voices don't always agree, right? You worked for every step of it, and um, it's really impressive. You're passionate about understanding people. You want to empower young women. What is it that you do to move that forward? Um, I, I do a few different things. Personally, my favorite thing to do is encouraging people to use their voice. Just about having these real open, raw conversations and creating the spaces to do that where real change is created. Once you have that conversation, other people start to have it and so on and so forth. Well, I hope we get this out to as many people as possible because you are something else. You are uh. one of a kind. And I'm so grateful that you came here today. I feel like we've given our listeners a wonderful first chapter on mm -hmm. your life and <laughs> who you are. What is your biggest concern for this great country today? What concerns me the most about this country where we're at today is that young people, my generation, so Gen Z, but then also generation below me and above me, millennials as well, that um, there aren't going to be enough of us that are truly motivated to create the change that we need for this country to progress. And what I mean by that is for example, voting. I think that 
my generation is really interesting because we're super passionate and open and we're confident we're outgoing. But then when push comes to shove, we're not so great at the execution at times. So you feel it's more conversation, not as much action. Sometimes I feel like I need to go around like a tour of the country and just like see and experience how other people are living. Um, because yeah, it's not just going to be New York. It's not just going to be California. Everyone needs to rally around it and use their voice. I mean, I've traveled the country. You know, I've been I've been an American girl from, you know, my whole life. So yeah, we've we've definitely, you know, done road trips and seen places and being married to a musician, taking tours and it's it's interesting. And I really find that some of the more open-minded and more embracing places tend to get closer to the uni- where the universities are. Yeah. So yeah. again, it brings us back to education. Mm-hmm. And you know, education is I believe a right for everyone. Mm-hmm. So for it to be cost prohibitive It's just a really, it's a sad thing. After thinking about it more now, one thing that really concerns me is the future of education for young people, especially with the case in the Supreme Court right now around affirmative action. It's so terrifying. I mean, it's awful because if I didn't have the opportunity and the privilege to go to high school, go to college, get a degree, I would not be where I am today. And I think even like way more important than that, I wouldn't have broken the cycle. And so generations to come, my kids, their kids, who knows what would have happened. And what what was your calling to to get education? Did you just I guess you said it was a way that you felt you could lift yourself self up and out of wherever you had come from or what was this burning desire to be educated? I think that for me, um, being educated was power. Knowledge was 100% power for me. Not only did I love learning, and I think school came pretty naturally to me, but I just knew in the back of my head, the more I know about this world and, I don't know, like business and how people make money and how people make change, the more powerful I'm going to be and the more control I'm going to have over my future. And I honestly, like, I think it kind of proved right, right? I think through, like, getting the education, like, it's allowed me to create this whole other life for myself that I would have otherwise not been able to. You're remarkable. Mm. And I'm so glad that you sat down with us today and gave us some of that valuable time. And um, I honor your time here and your space with us and your story. And I hope to maybe pick up with you again down the road and see where where you go. Absolutely. We're just getting started. Thank you so much for having me. This was amazing. It's so amazing to have the platform to tell my story. And I don't know, I just think it's really amazing that you're giving people this platform to do that. This episode of Deborah Craddock was hosted by me, Deborah Drucker. It was edited by Juan Sanson and produced by Lee Rocker and Chloe Cassins. Thank you to our engineers, Adam Burt and Hunter McKellar for making me sound good. Our amazing music was performed by Amy Nelson and Kathy Guthrie of Folk You. Be sure to rate and review this episode wherever you listen to podcasts. For more Deborah Craddock, check out DebraCraddock.com and our Instagram at Deborah Craddock. That's D-E-B-O-R-A-H Craddock. Like Democratic. Until next time. Political is personal, so 